0: Enter now at amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. That's amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. T's and C's apply. This week on Dylan Friends, I was lucky enough to be joined by podcast juggernaut and revered broadcaster Mark Howie Howard. I'm sure you've all listened to Mark's wonderfully popular and chart-topping podcast, The Howie Games. Sitting down with Howie was a special experience as he's been a constant trailblazer in the Australian podcast game and laid the foundations for people like myself. We bonded over similarities, but more importantly, we spoke about how his apprenticeship into the media landscape started, how The Howie Games actually came about, and what he's learned from talking to some of the biggest names in the sporting globe. I cannot thank Howie enough for joining me and sharing what was an overdue chat. I know you'll get a lot out of this one. But before we get into it, a big, big thank you to bloke and a lager. Who, without them, Dylan friends, would not be possible. Make sure you get online and check your nearest Stockers and grab a slab. The more we can get around and support them, the more they will help us grow. The link is in the show notes. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. Many ways I've
1: been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tease. Tease, tease. Tease. Tease.
0: Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to Next. the Olympics? <laughs> They're sitting there meditating going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. Like, How good is this? I'm meditating. It's like... <laughs> I had a Wu-Tang call. So I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love oh, it. It's knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like, <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Howie, welcome to Dylan Friend's Podcast, my friend. It's an honor, it's a pleasure, and it's an absolute privilege to have you on the show. The absolute goat of podcasting and just dominating in all facets of life. So it's a real honor today, mate, and a a big uh, tick in my box to have you on.
1: It's a nice intro. I'm normally doing the intros. I can't wait to have a chat with you, mate. You're killing it. Uh, I don't know about the GOAT, but it's certainly a fun space, the <laughs> podcasting, as we've both found out, buddies. This is a step up for me. Don't worry about your Fox cricket or footy or the Howie games. This is for me. All the cool kids are listening to Dylan Friends, so I'm very happy to be here, mate.
0: No, I really appreciate that, mate, and it's it's amazing because I suppose I know you're a big fan of my show, as I am of yours, but yes. I normally start each episode sort of setting the tone of where we met and how we first came along, and, and for us, it's probably a very fitting time to have this chat because I do remember um, obviously the Howie Games one of the biggest podcasts the the biggest sorry sporting podcast in Australia at the moment and I remember calling you back in 2018 when I first decided to you know start the podcasting game and and get some advice off yourself and you know I I really do appreciate and I look back at that something today that's been incredible do you remember that phone call? I do. I do. I remember it. I was driving up to the footy, so I would have told you to ring me at that time, and we
1: had a long chat about everything that I've learned, and you've taken that and gone further, but it's gone the other way because, I must tell you, <laughs> listeners, I rang you four months ago and said, I don't know anything about merchandise, and you said, don't worry, and you set me on the path to merchandise, so it's it's been a nice symbiotic relationship, mate.
0: It has. And there was a little bit, though, how I do um, must regress on what I said because there was a part when I was driving down a long road and I was listening to some radio and Triple M, obviously my favourite radio station (laughs) in the world, and I was driving home and to hear one of my heroes talk about me on radio (laughs) and then the the news wasn't as great. I've got a clip here for you if we can just replay it because I wouldn't mind just getting to the bottom of what you were talking about in this, Damon.
1: Go on. Dylan, friends, my favourite podcast. Great choice. Does a great job. Just, if you missed it, just have a little recap of some of the arrogance delivered by our own Mark Howe. Dylan, he's a good little fella, and he rang me a year and a half ago, and he said, mate, I'm trying to start a podcast, can you help me out? So I I gave him some tips. Derogatory, like, he's He's a good little fella. And Kate Simpson is a fantastic guest for the local audience, which you boys are dealing with. Local! (laughs) Local!
0: Howie, (laughs) what is that? What was that?
1: Okay. A bit of backstory. I work on Triple M on a show called The Friday Huddle, where you have to take on certain personalities that may not be you, Dill. So we always say that Luke Darcy has a terrible temper. Nathan Brown is very awkward in a social situation, which is true. And they have tagged me as being arrogant, which I hope people understand with my podcast. That is not me. So I had to come out all guns blazing, my friend, um, and call you a local show and it was no disrespect to Kate Simpson but we're having a bit of fun on the radio and then you rang in and put me right back in my place but that that is not me that's me having a playing a role with a radio show on a Friday night
0: no and I know for for viewers as well and listeners that we actually were speaking prior to this and we spoke after (laughs) it and we we both agreed that it's a great plug for both of our shows (laughs) and Jesus spikes after that were incredible so I do appreciate that we played the role
1: You know what's crazy, though, is people 100% believe what they hear on the radio or television. So uh, 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 last week, Nathan Brown on the same show was going through what media people earn, for example. And he had me as the fourth highest football media earner at $1.3 million. I got home and my wife said, where is all this money? Because we're not seeing it. I had all these mates texting me, mate. I can't believe how you've made a success. If I was only one point three deal, I'm living on a beach in Costa Rica. I'm not <laughs> yeah. doing radio, so it's it's amazing what people do believe, mate.
0: I oh, know it's incredible. and I suppose it's a credit to uh, both your show and mine, and, and the loyal listeners that do tune in because they were filthy, they were not happy, and they wanted blood. So I thought today it'd be Did good they? to to get to get you on and <laughs> and to settle the nerves and um and show that you know we are friends and. And these things happen. But, mate, um, today's not about me. It's about you. Um, you know, you're obviously normally asking the questions, but today I want to learn a little bit more about yourself, the man behind the mic, um, because it's an incredible career, mate. Not just the, the podcast, but I suppose your tradition, um, so your you know route to media landscape, commentating both footy, cricket, radio, broadcasting, uh, and podcasting, sorry. I think a lot of people would think, like, fuck, this has just been a – this guy's just blown up. It's an overnight success. But I think – and I definitely know this it's – it's a 30 to 40 – year overnight success rather than um something that's just happened there's been a lot of work that's gone into it and I think that that's probably the biggest part that we can talk about today how your journey to getting to where you are now it's been a long road and a lot of hard work's gone into it to finally get the rewards you're getting today
1: yeah I think you're right mate um maybe not 40 year journey I'm not quite that old but uh It's like the rock and roll stars, you know, They had the when did you become an overnight sensation? There's no such thing in media as an overnight sensation. I think the the generation, probably your generation, mate, when I see the, the people working in media, they want to be hosting the show and commentating and being the main guy or girl within a year. And it's just not realistic. I think the great benefit you have with a long grounding is you... I've played every role in the television and radio production from pulling cables to directing to producing to reporting, to hosting, to commentating. So I'm in a fortunate position now after a lot of years where I know what the director wants because I've done his job or what the producer wants because I've done her job or what the camera guys want because I've done their job. There was a, The other day at the footy was a prime example. Your man, Mark Blitzars, was doing a fitness test and the camera guys were on a break. And the director was saying we need someone to shoot this, and I jumped up on the camera. It was a little bit out of focus, to be completely honest, still. Yeah. But they rolled it into the broadcast because I, I've sat there and I've used a camera before. So to have the knowledge of what everyone's trying to do certainly helps you in your role, I reckon, mate. But yeah, there's no—I don't think there's such a thing in the in the media as an overnight sensation.
0: No, I completely agree. How did it start then, Harry? Like, what was your tradi- like? What was the path? How did you get into it? Did you study media? Growing up, was it something you were passionate about? Did you just start, you know, working behind the scenes and slowly, gradually get your way and find your niche?
1: Yeah, that's a two-hour answer. But to cut a long story short, no, I had no thought that I wanted to get into the media when I was growing up. I did a business degree in sports management, which was accounting and economics and things like this deal Which at Deakin University, which I didn't enjoy. I got six months in and I thought, wow, this is not what I was expecting. I'm having to do economics and accounting, business law. I didn't enjoy it, but I finished it after three years and to cut a long story short, I spent a lot of time, a couple of years backpacking and uh, a mate was getting married that I'd backpack with and the Grand Prix was in Melbourne. I got a short-term contract in event management at the Grand Prix and he was getting married in Argentina. Two weeks later and I was skint, I didn't have any money, I'd been traveling and I pestered the guys that ran the TV broadcast side of things in the world of Formula One and they eventually said, if you can get yourself to Sao Paulo, which was the capital of Brazil, which was not the capital, it's where the race was, the capital is Brasilia. If you can get yourself there, it's a city of 30 million people deal, but I'd been there. We can give you some work for a week and a half and the next Grand Prix is in Argentina. And in between those two Grand Prix was my mate, Timmy Harris's wedding. So, I flew to Buenos Aires and I worked with all these English truck drivers and we were pulling the camera cables. So to get a broadcast and outside broadcast, all the cameras are connected by cables and those cables go back into the broadcast hub. So that was my first experience at sports media. I was a rigger, as they call it, pulling the camera cables. I went to Timmy's wedding, which was an absolute cracker. And then I was going up surfing up Columbia way. And they owed me some money. So I rang back reverse (laughs) charges to the UK. I said, oh, some of that money hasn't gone into my account. I didn't have enough money to get home at this stage deal. And they said, well, put the money through. We're glad you rang. The boys said you worked hard. If you can be in Monaco... In five days' time, there's a full-time job for you as a rigger. So I flew home, broke mum and dad's heart again and said, I'm going to Monaco and started pulling camera cables on the Formula 1 circuit. And that's how it all began, which is a long way from doing a podcast. So it, it's, um, it was fantastic, mate. I was working on the Formula 1 World Tour, traveling the world, pulling camera cables. As a 23-year-old, it was cool.
0: It's unbelievable, mate. And I think that back to your point that you said earlier about um, younger people now coming into an industry and not – I suppose not the arrogance of wanting to be on camera, but probably not knowing what other people have to do to get to where they are now. Um, I I can speak from that myself. You know, when I left footy, I was sort of thinking, like, it'd be good to just go get a full-time job on radio now. It's not the case. It's not how it works. You know, I had to work at 3 aw. I was answering phone calls um, on, you know, 3 aw. Like, I had absolutely no (laughs) interest in anything that they were saying at all. But to slowly get to where you wanted to be, you had to tick these boxes. And I probably haven't even realised it till now, but doing that, um, by no means uh, by no means am I you know, an expert in my field and what I'm doing now, but I learned so much from those early things from behind the camera, from working with the producers to then exactly what you said. You learn how then to better yourself and, and it actually helps you out going forward because now like with the producing side of things, I can help other people produce shows. I do yep. know what audiences want to hear. There is those backward skills that necessarily, if you go straight to the stop straight away and transition straight into a role of, of talking on... Radio, you don't really know what other people want?
1: You're spot on and I think it can harm your career as well if you want to be an on-air person. And I've had mates that do it, I won't name them, but I've had mates that have been pushed up to high profile roles on television or on radio before they had the experience to know how to do those roles properly and it burnt them and it's cost them and they're no longer in the industry. And especially mate which i'm sure we'll talk about social media is so brutal now for you as a footballer you as a podcaster me as a broadcaster people will give you their thoughts straight away so if you go on television or radio and make a meal of it when i was starting i was in the lowest of low profile things that no one was watching and i learned how to do it so all my cock ups, and mate, i have made thousands of them were on real low-profile style operations where if you go on Friday Night Footy and you stuff it up now like a player, mate, the feedback and the response is brutal. So I think that grounding helps you. You don't want to start on the big stage. You don't want to start playing the Masters. You want to start playing the bar when heads open and play your bad shots there, not in front of the world on the Masters, I reckon.
0: So traditionally as well, like there's no path. You work, no. as I said, with, with Fox, you work with Triple M, you've got your podcast, you work with all these incredible people and they've all probably had different pathways coming through. Your opinion though, what do you think has been something that's held you in the best stead going forward? Is it just that time that it's taken you probably where you thought, fuck, you know, I can't be fucked just doing this shit anymore. I want to get to the top straight away. You're always in a rush, which I feel like... I'm always in a rush. I think you need to actually have that feeling of being in a rush. Otherwise, you don't, you're never going to get anywhere anyway. But what's held you in the best stead looking back now thinking that was the, probably the best thing that happened yeah. to someone. Now, I know it and I can act on it now.
1: It's a great question. Before I answer it, can I tell you, I would love to swear on my podcast. Oh, I swear. I, we swear I a sw- lot. I swear a lot in normal life, but for whatever reason, and I've had guests that swear, whatever reason... <laughs> Oh, I can't. I can't because I'm so used to not swearing on air. But I find it truly liberating, Dill, that you are prepared oh. and happy to swear on your podcast. I love Fuck, it,
0: mate. I love it. I
1: do, <laughs> no, and I wish, <laughs> I wish I could say that as well. It just feels not right to me. But I love people that can. I think the best thing that has held me in good stead is just saying yes. Yeah. So the amount of roles I've been asked to fill, whether it was pulling camera cables and then we say, they said we need someone to put the graphics on the screen at Formula One. I didn't have a clue how to do it. Yep, I can do that. If you're, I was a reporter on the news and they said we need someone to commentate Iron Man. I've got no idea about it, but my theory is, deal always say yes and then start paddling and figure out how to do it because there is a graphics operator before you that knows how to do it. So get hold of them. Or there is someone that has commentated Iron Man before you. Get hold of them, find out how to do it. I think with a podcast now, and I've found where for the first time where I've had people doing things for me rather than me doing things for other people, the people that just say, yep, I'll get it done and go and do it and don't ask too many questions and provide the results. That is the type of person I like working with. And that is the type of person I tried to be. So the boss says, "Can you do it?" You just say, "Yep," and you go and figure out how to do it and do it. And you might make a mistake along the way, but I think the boss would rather that than you saying, "Yeah, I'm not sure." And and you, as you say, you're you're in a hurry, and I fully appreciate that. So you just keep saying yes, and that path becomes quicker. So that's that's the best thing that I've learned along the way.
0: I love that, and I think you know you would you chat to you know very high profile people, world show as as you um, commonly. <laughs> Recommend it too but Global I think Global compared global, to local sorry. brother Global compared to local Fantastic. Did people
1: really um, blow up When I gave you a cook on the radio?
0: <laughs> no they They didn't But they might when they hear it Don't worry <laughs> um, I think the one thing That is prevalent in, in my guess And I'm assuming yours And I think it's in successful people Like yourself um, The one thing I always try and grab from people Is doers and I think yes. it's like the biggest thing in the world is just doing things. Mate, you work with so many incredible people. You speak to so many incredible people. And something that I admire about you the most um, in your work is there's probably a stigma in, in commentary and broadcasting that some people would hold. is like, if you haven't done this, how can you comment on it? Yes. If you haven't played at the top level, yep. how can you talk to people at the top level? How can you commentate these things? How have you found that? Um, Has it actually been something that you've faced, you know, coming through your ranks in terms of like commentary and broadcasting, podcasting, even being an expert in your field? And how have you probably dealt with that throughout your career?
1: It's a really interesting question. Once you start doing something, so I I was doing a lot of high-profile cricket broadcasting on the Big Bash, and then Fox were keen for me to call the football on the telly. Now, I've been calling footy on the radio for five or six years, and as soon as you start calling football on the television, people have this generalized role that you can only do one thing. What's this clown from the Big Bash doing commentating the footy? So, so you get that. Yeah. How can you cover various sports? And I probably do it as well. If there's a certain people person you're used to seeing in one role and they're playing another role, but to answer your original question. I think it is a big thing and I still get messages what would you know about the cricket you know how could you comment on the way Coley just got out that's people just hating because I never ever ever comment on the athlete so that that's my first rule of thumb I don't commentate on a test match and say Virat Kohli should have flicked that through mid-wicket and his hands were too high on his bat and he got a leading edge and he's out or gee that's a poor kick from Dylan Buckley he was obviously holding the ball wrong I never say that so when people criticise and say what would you know you've never played the game I'm not there to tell you how the game is unfolding I'm there to tell you about who's got the ball who's bowling and the way they do it and the experts beside me the Ricky Pontings, the Adam Gilchrist, the Shane Warns or at the footy the Gary Lyons, the Jonathan Browns they're the experts so it grates on me when I hear someone that is the commentator that starts to inject their opinion because I sit at home as well and think well how could old mate know because he hasn't done it so I do that as well so I'm very aware to play your role and your role is to make the special comments, guys and girls, sound as good as they possibly can, as clever as they can, and that aids the broadcast overall to make it a more positive thing. I'm just telling you what's happening, they're telling you why it's happening. And it's a really, really important difference. A really important difference, mate.
0: I think as well, and, and something that I've I don't know if this is how you felt through it, but it's something from, you know, a spectator that I've seen you and obviously kept a close eye on you because I, you know, I love your work. Is, Thanks, mate. <laughs> is when people do things, and if you and I've just found this in my life as well. In terms of, I think it's Australian culture. We love like knocking people down mm. and, and you know doing those you know tall poppy syndrome, whatever it's called. When you do something and you do it with conviction and you don't give people the option to be upset with it, no one cares. They just got, they just accept it. Like I think that's what, with your transition from cricket and football. It wasn't a time where you were like, oh, should I do this? I don't know what's going on. If you just go like, fuck, I've done this. And yeah. people just go, oh, fuck, okay, cool. Get out of his way, sweet. But it's when you like second guess yourself and you, you maybe you're not as confident with it, that's when people start to question and, and it, like they be able to seep in a bit more. So I think, I don't know if that's how it's transitioned with you, but I feel like you haven't really given anyone even the option to, to question your credibility in that space and it's just come through so organically.
1: Yeah, and I think your credibility also... When I say that I do everything to make the special comments guys and girls sound as good as they can, that adds to the broadcast. I learned that on the Big Bash. The boss of mine, David Barham, said, we need to find out who Ricky Ponting is without his helmet on. We need to find out that he loves greyhounds and the Mark War loves a bet on the horses and that he just wasn't this guy that was pretty standoffish with the media. Once you develop that chemistry on air with the superstars, who are people, people don't turn in to watch me on the footy of the cricket, they turn on to watch Gilly or John O'Brown or Nick Rewalt or Shane Warne. Once you understand that and you put your energy into making them sound as good as possible, it's reciprocal because then they show eventually you respect. And once Warney says on a cricket broadcast, yeah, great call, Howie, the punters at home think, wow, this bloke knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, Ian Baker Finch taught me that on golf. I did a, an early golf tournament, and someone hit a shot. I was like the little roving guru out on the fairways, you know. Dylan Buckley's got a 9-iron, 160 to the pin. And I called it, and Finchy said, I couldn't have said that any better, Howie. That's spot on. Now, I could have been way off, but he said that, and I had all these mates text me and say, geez, I didn't know you know so much about golf. So it's yeah. perception. It's not that I know about golf. It's that I'm playing my role and Finchie's a beautiful enough broadcaster to bring me into his world and give you the stamp of approval. And when the people that are the experts look after you, then it becomes a convincing broadcast.
0: That's super interesting. I think that's like a massive, massive point from working probably behind the scenes on a radio show and, and what you would do with your team and the commentary teams. I think people from the public would think, oh, that's just, you know, three blokes sitting in there in a room commentating on a game, they mustn't put any practice into that or know the cohesion or the teamwork or have these you know little idiosyncrasies that they pick up on throughout that goes into it. But how much planning for people that don't know yeah. really goes into broadcasting, calling a game where you've got a team of people going there that you look at each other, you know the plays, like you know what each other, you play up on certain things that they do. How much work goes into that?
1: A lot of it's chemistry that you build over time. So if you want to talk actual preparation for a game of AFL football, for example, I know you've got a lot of people who are into footy. So I'll say this openly. I shouldn't say this, but I hate preparing for a game of football. I don't enjoy sitting there watching replays of two weeks ago of the Gold Coast Suns. So I figure out who every player is, but it's part of the job. I've never enjoyed the preparation part of it. Like, I love footy, but I don't need to commentate four games a weekend and then come home and figure out Flanders is 26 for the Gold Coast Suns and Corbett is 19. But I have to as part of my job. So I will spend, you know, half a day each week looking back, figuring out exactly who I know who each player is. Dwayne Russell, for example, I've talked to him about this. He loves it. He loves footy. He just wants to watch footy all the time. So to him, that's not a burden. To me, I find it a bit of a burden, but it's something that I can, especially when I went into commentating on the telly, I was commentating, Eddie was commentating there, Dwayne Russell, Anthony Hudson, these are elite commentators, and I had a thought in my mind, I'm not going to be able to call as well as them, Dil. I'm just not going to be able to, but I can make sure I know the players equally as well as them so I can take that out. I can take that out so I don't stuff up players. So I've made a real focus on understanding exactly who each player is because I tell you, mate, if I call 600 players in a game of footy, if I call one of them the wrong name, I'll show you my phone, and I've got to get better at this, 30 messages. You shouldn't be commentating. How can you commentate? You didn't realize that, you know, the other day I called, Charlie Cameron kicked a goal. I called it, they were playing each other. I said, accidentally, Charlie Dixon rather than Charlie Cameron. Now, it's pretty obvious. See, there's a difference between the two. Yeah. But you'll get 50 messages on social media. How can you be commentating if you don't know the difference between those players? So I, I spend a tremendous amount of work on that then you you make up your sheet so you've got an idea that joel selwood's averaging 33 possessions this year and it's his career high so you do a bit of that work but then i learn a lesson early doors i have to do that to prepare but generally for cricket as well and the radio i try not to do a great deal of preparation when i started at channel 10 on motorsport i was working with guys that knew it inside out and they would do so much preparation and I tried it, deal and it just filled my head with all this information and I couldn't focus on what I was trying to do. So I do as much as I need to to get the players right and then I very much prefer to go by the seat of my pants because that what is what works for me. But then if you look at McAvaney, the preparation he'll put in is five times more than me because that's what works for him. And I'm sure when you were playing footy, you looked around and you thought, right, this is the way Juddie prepares – I'll try that. No, that it doesn't work for me. This is the way Jack Silvani or Toby Green prepares. Nah. And then you found what worked best for you as far as preparation. I think it's important that you find what works best for you. But I tell you, mate, you get numbers wrong in a game of footy, and by gee, people let you know about it in a
0: big hurry. <laughs> Oh, mate, I can imagine. I seriously say some things on this podcast. I have a unique skill that all listeners would know, but I can just, like, make up words and put them into sentences that, like, have no <laughs> meaning whatsoever. But I sort of just embrace it now and people. I think they understand. It's actually quite an impressive skill. You might hear it today. I, I can't call on it. It just comes at some stages. But but if you say um, it with
1: conviction, mate, it's like... That's what I like- mean,
0: like, conviction's the key. You it's just like go with it.
1: when there's a difficult pronunciation, if it's a subcontinental cricketer, you just say it hard and fast and yeah. back yourself and don't stumble or back over it and
0: you'll be away. Mate, my tongue has a, a mind of its own, especially after I've had a beer. That's why I try. <laughs> it's good to only have one beer when I do a podcast because after that, I am speaking different languages, which is um, interesting. It makes a very interesting podcast. Um, in terms of in commentating um, yep. footy and cricket, can you give me a couple of mentors or – people yeah. that you've really looked up to in, in both sports of ones that, you know, have helped you either away or inspired you to, to be the best you can.
1: Adam Gilchrist, certainly I like to think I've got a, a really good relationship with Gilly now. There's a bit when, of romance
0: there with you and Gilly. Yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, people forget that for the last eight summers now, I have spent more summer time with Gilly than my wife and kids because a test match runs five days. You get there a day before. You leave a day after. There's a break between the test match. You go to the next one. You might be doing a big bash game in the middle of it. So I spent a lot of time with him. And when we first got the big bash at Channel 10, probably Ricky and Mark War, who I would hope I was counted as friends now. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> uh, they take a bit of getting to know those two blokes. They, they've got... You know, Ricky was the Australian captain. He was a tough man. I probably took a year to get to know Ricky and probably Junior as well. Probably a year and a half till I really felt like I could click on with Junior. Gilly walked into that first meeting. He's like, my name's Adam. To everyone in the room, he's just got a real warmth and immediacy about him. And I was really drawn to that. So hopefully I've helped him in broadcasting a little but He has equally helped me. To the point where if it's a new touring side, Gilly will make the effort out on the ground where I've got to talk to the players. He'll go and introduce me and things like that, which is fantastic. So from a cricket point of view, Gilly has been fantastic. Probably not without realising, Hutto. I, I follow what Hutto does in football broadcasting because I think he's elite. James Brayshaw as well. Probably not so much asking these guys and girls questions, but just listening to what they do and seeing them work. I sat on the boundary for six years at Triple M, listening to James commentate the football every Saturday, and I learned a a tremendous amount from that. And, And then there's guys that I work for, David Barham at Channel 10, and now Steve Crawley, who's the executive producer of Fox Sports. Crawls will ring me or tap me on the shoulder during a stint of cricket commentary or ring me afterwards and say, why don't you think about doing it like this? I struggle with test cricket, mate. It probably took me two and a half years to really get the hang of it where Big Bash felt quite natural. And he made a lot of suggestions, Steve, that have really helped me. So what's the difference there, Howie?
0: Like oh, I, you know, mate. obviously it's a different game, but what's the difference yep. for a commentating perspective? Is it just longer form talking or
1: probably a mindset for me? I didn't grow up watching Big Bash and I look at it as purely entertainment. I'm probably I'm an excitable customer when I'm commentating, mate. So if someone belts it out of the ground, it comes naturally to me to, to get stuck right in. But test cricket, I grew up loving the game of test cricket. So I'd probably hold it on a pedestal. And then I was sitting there after going to the Boxing Day test with my mates for 20 years. You're sitting there next to Kerry O'Keefe and Shane Warne. And the boss says, right, you call the first half hour of Boxing Day. You've grown up with Richie and Bill and Tony And you're like, if I could swear now, I would, Dil. You're like, (laughs) I'm not Richie. I'm not Bill. I'm not Tony. How can I be commentating this game of test cricket? And that took me a long time mentally to get past it. Then the boss said to me two years in, he said, we've done two of six years here. You're going well, but you can go to the next level. But you don't know what's going to be happening in four years. What happens contract-wise, whether you get another contract, whether we've still got the cricket, don't waste your time hanging on the back row thinking you're not up to doing this you got four more years, four more seasons of it. Make the most of it because you may never get to do it again. And at that point, and Shane is really good, Warren. He's like, mate, you can. people value what you're going to say. And I'm like, Argh. he said, they value what you're going to say and the job you do. Back yourself more. So that that was a massive thing for me. And then there's the technical side of it. There's a lot more gaps in, in test cricket than big bash cricket. It was probably a confidence thing because I loved cricket so much. I'm not bloody Richie Beno, mate, and then I'm doing the job he used to do and that, that takes a long time to get it used to. I'm sure it's the same for you playing footy when you're out on the ground with these guys and you think, oh, gee, I'm out here playing with Chris Judd. I, I don't know what you thought, Dua. No, definitely But I, I, I could imagine you'd think, geez, how can I be out on the ground with him? I, I would think the same thing in Test cricket.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that's probably where for me, you know, I never really over, overcame that and that's why I don't think it really worked. For me, so that's why it's a, it's a interesting topic when you're saying it because you've overcome that now and I suppose it just came from, from repetition and just believing in yourself yep. somehow, having a good team around you that instilled confidence in you.
1: So a question for you then because I think now with 130 episodes of – elite athletes on my global podcast that I knock out deal, Very deal. I, I have learned so much and I'm stoked I'm learned, I'm able to pass this on to my kids. And I look back and think, if I knew what I've learned in the last four years, 15 years ago, where would I be in life? If you, with the wonderful guests you've talked to, like the Emma Murrays of the world and the Patrick Cripps of the world, if you had learnt their lessons now, do you think you'd still be playing footy?
0: 100% I, yeah. I 100% would be but Harry I, I'm so happy that I'm not
1: I know I know, I, like, I, I, I know yeah, and you're yeah. in a better place but that oh, knowledge if I knew that what I knew gaining, then yeah. definitely
0: and that's that's the selfish part of doing podcasts And it's probably something that uh, you know we can get into um, in, a, in a minute because like I, I think podcasting for example it's, it's something that it's for people to listen to and learn knowledge of people. That's why I love doing it. Like mm. Selfishly, there's an aspect where like I'm just chatting to these incredibly successful people. They're doing things that I've wanted to do. And every episode, I try and just take one thing from it. Like yep. one thing from every episode um, that I've done. And normally you get more. Normally you get so much more. But that's the biggest thing is like I've chatted to so many people. And sometimes it's like the most innocuous guess that that's where you get the gold from. Um, and I really, really... Appreciate So I suppose in that aspect, like, yeah, you're right. Like if I knew those things now, could I be doing, could I have played footy longer? Maybe hundred percent. But I also think like I nearly had to go through that shitness of like being delisted, not believing in myself, yeah, all that like shit time to then go fuck. And now I've learned it from a different aspect and I can relate it to a different part of my life in my business. And I think we spoke about this when we chatted a while ago, that energy that I, you know, I don't miss footy at all. Because I've just taken that complete competitiveness uh, competitiveness, and drive and just put it straight in back into this. Um, and it's it's nearly the same thing. I'm chatting to people all day, talking shit, um, learning stuff and being able to put it out to the public. And there's still there's still scrutiny. There's still um, improvement areas. There's still feedback. So I'm sort of getting it all. Um, it's just not having to run around and put my head over it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, as you say, you can... You can learn a tremendous amount from listening to people, which is what podcasting is basically. You're listening. You know, I've learned already in this half an hour that I need to get over it and I need to swear on my podcast. That's one thing yeah, I've learned swear. from you. But we're having a laugh about that. I, I rang you. I texted you about a month ago. You're up in Noosa and I said, mate, I'd love to sit down and catch up and have a chat about podcasting because I think what you're doing and I can see where you're going and where you're going to end up, It's it's... It's phenomenal what you are doing and your vision, which I don't know whether you want to talk about or not, but I, I see you in five years running a series of podcasts and being like a podcast don. And I, I think it's that's brilliant, mate. And it, I find it quite inspiring and I find it motivating that you're getting out there and having a crack and you, you haven't had the background in media that I've had to help me along the way, yet you're absolutely flying. So I, I, I've... By texting you and saying, mate, let's catch up at some stage, I'm trying to grab onto that knowledge because you're taking it to a whole new area, which I think is really cool, mate, and massive credit to you. And people that listen to your show, you know, you're, you're a you're, a, you're a low-key larrikin. That's the way you come across. But I hope people understand that listen to your show, the direction you're heading in, and I've got no doubt the place you'll end up because you're prepared to learn and work and think outside the box. And I think that's what's really cool about most people in this space. They're thinking outside the box as to, to what the next step is. So, mate, when we catch up, I'm just trying to figure out what the next step is so I don't get left behind, Guru.
0: No, not at all, mate. I really appreciate that. It's beautiful words. It puts a smile in my heart. and. Um, it's yeah to hear that from you as well if someone that you know has been there done that and obviously doing tremendous things it really really does mean a lot mate. So I do do really appreciate it. but that's enough about me. you're buttering me up and I don't like it. Um, the Howie games yeah how did this come about? this is I honestly don't know how this happened because you were onto this so early. like was it just did, ask answer this question because I feel like people always ask me how'd you get into podcasting? Yeah, I got into it because I had no other options, no radio station wanted to give me any. Um, time to come in and learn anything. I started it because I was like, fuck, if I get fired again, at least I'll have 10 episodes to show (laughs) a network next year that I've done some work.
1: And you can't get sacked from your own podcast, mate. You cannot get sacked from your own show.
0: I've found that now. I'm 28 years of old. Uh, 28 years of old. I'm 28 years of age. I've been sacked three times already. Three of the best sackings. Two football. One was um, at 3AW, which was, we'll talk about another time. Um, but it, you know, I've learned so much from those times. But how did you get into it? Did you think it was actually going to be a, a long-term thing? And were you doing this to just better yourself and um, get your foot in the door to higher places?
1: I can remember it clearly. I can tell you the day it was the Australian Grand Prix. So it would have been six years ago now. And I used to work at Channel 10. And I had to interview all the drivers when they'd arrive. And then you'd sit down and do interviews with whoever and whoever. And I developed a on-camera what I would call good relationship with Lewis Hamilton. The boys on a Friday night. They'll cut this out and they'll say, oh, he's dropping names again. They always <laughs> rip on me for dropping names. But I'll take the story back. So when you're interviewing someone, Dill, which is the essence of podcasting, it's the perfect example in the Formula One paddock. So at the end of a race or at the end of qualifying, there'll be 30 journos in what's called the media pen. So there's the guru from Spain, the guru from Germany, the guru from Italy. This is going to be a long-winded answer. Is that all right?
0: Please keep going.
1: The guru from Austria, the guru from South Africa, and Lewis gets paraded around with his media person in front of everyone. And you get a minute, you know, he must be put with a win or qualify, etc. cetera. And, and I noticed straight away that the journos are looking at him, they're not smiling, they're looking disinterested, they're asking negative questions. And I learned straight, I knew it, but it, it highlighted to me if you smile, Lewis, great to see you. I really appreciate your time. Well, that qualifying, unbelievable. How are you feeling about that? So you're just being a positive dude. And straight away, it's not that you're a TV star, it's that you're smiling and a positive and the other 29 turkeys aren't, that you develop a rapport. So over five, six years of doing the Grand Prix, I developed a good on-air rapport with Lewis Hamilton. And we sat down once to do a one-on-one interview before the race weekend. Uh, You know, we were talking about his pets and his love of music and uh, all sorts of things, surfing. He likes to surf, not Formula One. And it was meant to be a, I think we had eight minutes. We had an eight-minute slot to chat with Lewis Hamilton. And it probably went for 35 minutes because it was going really well. Um, His media people could see he was happy and engaged. So we had this 35-minute chat, right? Cut a long story short, as the great Craig Johnson said on my podcast, (laughs) and he didn't cut them short. 35 minutes. We're on air for twenty-two hours across Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday on Channel Ten. Lewis Hamilton, because of the constraints of modern Formula One, uh, modern television, could only run five minutes. And I was bitching and moaning. I said to the boss, This is the biggest rock star in world sport. We've got five minutes and we're doing a, a four minute story about Formula One tyres or whatever it may be. He said, Mate, that's all the time we've got because of the constraints of commercial television with ad breaks. So I was sitting with a great mate of mine, Jarvis Hunter, who's an editor. And he's like, There's 30 minutes of this goal that's never going to see the light of day. You should turn these chats you do into a podcast. And I said to him, Deal. What's a podcast? I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. And he pulls out the old iPhone and shows me the purple button. He said, look at this. And he hits it. And there's this world of knowledge. If you like gardening, there's one there for gardeners. If you like speed boating, if you like Formula One. How long has this been going on, Javi? I said, he said, mate, this is the future. You've got to get into this. So I talked to the guys at Triple M. They told me what gear to buy, which I've still got here now, deal held together by a couple of lacquer bands. And the very first one I did was with, the first one I ever put out was Adam Gilchrist, but the first one I did was with Dennis Cometti. Uh, and I went to his hotel room, he said, how, he said, what is this? I said, I don't really know, Dan, we'll just sit down and have a chat. And 10 minutes in, I thought, wow, there's no ad breaks. There's no producer in my ear. There's no topics I have to cover. I'm a naturally inquisitive person. I'm in the same industry as this dude. I can just pick his brain as you're talking about, deal." So that's how it started. I remember driving home after recording with a de- great Dennis Cometti. Firstly, thinking, geez, I hope that recorded because I'm not really sure how to operate this equipment. And secondly, that's as much fun as I've had in the media for 15 years. This is something that I want to pursue. And we can talk about how it grew from there, but that is the long story of how it all
0: started, mate. Yeah, the, mate, please keep going. How did it grow from there? How did it turn into the beast it is?
1: Well... Uh, and then I recorded one with Gilly and, and we did a few more and, and I didn't realise how many people I had been fortunate enough to work with in sport of a high-profile nature. And then I had to go to the West Indies to commentate on cricket for five weeks, which is a good gig deal. Trust me, commentating T20 cricket in the Caribbean. And there were these cricketers there. Brad Hodge was waiting to play a game, so record one with him or Damian Martin or Darren Sammy, the West Indian. So I started to realise... All the people that I do know and have met, so we started a compile it together. So the Gilly episode was the first one we put out. I think, I think after about two weeks, my producer at the time, Michael James, great man, he rang me said, "Mate, we've just got to a hundred people listen." Well, I cracked the cans open, Guru. This <laughs> oh my is, God, this is cracked the cans open stuff. So we got to a hundred, and then a hundred became a thousand, and then. A thousand became a hundred thousand, then you know, where it's 50 odd million now. And there's, it goes back to what we we're saying. It sounds like you just record the interview and send the guest out, and away you go, do all of the, of the 50 plus million people that have downloaded the show or have listened to an episode, I feel like half of those people I've dragged personally by responding to a social media message or an email or having a chat with them in the Qantas club or talking about it on the radio or the cricket broadcast or whatever. So it's one to have the product, which I I think it's a good product. Obviously, I think it's a good product. 50
0: million other people might agree.
1: Yeah, the... The marketing of it and the selling of it to get people to be aware of it is a whole nother kettle of fish.
0: And that's probably where, you know, we picked up a lot of chats early when I was trying to do this and yes. the way you explained how smart your marketing was and, um, you know, I think a lot of people uh, see you as a commentator but they probably don't understand the business mind that you have too in terms of dropping it in when you're commentating, when you're on TV and, and that's how, like you said, we joke about it but global audience, you do have a global audience. You've got global guests and you travel the world to do it. Um, not only is it an entertaining show, but it's a, it's a good business model, um, and that's probably been something that's been really admirable from my point of view, looking at it going, fuck, this is so smart.
1: Yeah, but, and that's just been learnt on the job, mate, that I, I don't have a business mind. Like I did that bloody business degree, but I don't have a business mind at yeah. all. Uh, and a man that helps me with a lot of things, Craig Kelly, who, who heads up TLA and management company, as you know, because they look after you as well. He said to me about seven years ago, you've got to stop coming out of meetings and say, oh, I didn't really understand any of that, but I'll have a crack. He said, that's not what people want to hear in meetings. You've yeah. got to try and understand it. So I've tried to understand this business and the platform I'm on with Listener, probably the first two years, I was pushing them the whole way because they were new to it. And now it's probably a bit more symbiotic. But it's just little things. I don't think he'd mind me saying this. I won't mention it, but I had a boss at Channel 10 that said, I said, can I mention the podcast on the Big Bash? He said, no. But he said, you've done episodes with Gilly or Ricky twice during the summer. You can get them to bring it up. So I wasn't allowed to say, hey, check out the Howie games, because you can't do that on a, on a broadcast. Yeah. But they would just drop in on game 37 of the season. Oh, Howie, you had Damian Martin on your show, you know, enjoying the podcast. And that's all they would say. And the big bash at that stage was going to 1.1, 1.2 million people. And my downloads, you know, you get that little graph. Mm-hmm. It was like, like the Yu Yangs. And then they mentioned them. boom. It was Aye. like Mount Everest. And... That gives you a chance. The people will then hear about it. They will listen to an episode. But then, deal. it is up to them. If it's crap, they're not going to come back. So you get one crack with the audience when you advertise like that to come to the show. If they stick with it, it's completely up to the, st- the, the standard of your product, I reckon.
0: That's huge. The art of the interview, obviously, you don't know what you're really doing when you first start. You adapt and you learn each show. You do it. What do you think is your most important trait that you can bring to an interview to get the best out of a guest like i think i well i know i listened to a few of your shows recently just to get a really good understanding of, of everything and you you made a really good comment that i loved um that i'd never really quite thought about it like this before but you said you know when i have if an episode isn't up to standard it's never the guest's fault it's my fault because i haven't supplied enough information for them or made them feel comfortable or, or asked the right questions
1: yeah, absolutely. It was funny. I was going for a walk with my beautiful wife, Erica, this morning. She said, what are you going to talk to Dill about? I said, I don't know. The pressure's off. It's up to him. If it's a good episode, it's because he's done a good job. And if it's not, it's because he hasn't. And that, that's the way I look at it. Uh, like the one I, I, I didn't feel, the one episode that I, I was never happy with was Anthony Mundine. And people said to me, oh, Mundine was a crap podcast. I'm like, yeah, it's because I asked the wrong questions. I didn't have the ability to connect with him where he was open to talk about his story. So that was my fault, it wasn't Anthony's fault. I think the biggest skill, and I've had to relearn it by doing it over Zoom, which we're doing now, is to listen, is to not say much, is to really listen to what people are saying and react to what they're saying. The worst thing you can do is have your questions written down. And I'm thinking, okay, the next question I'm gonna ask, Dylan, is about what it was like getting cut from GWS. And he's talking about his GWS days and he said it had a significant impact on him when his grandma died. And I don't ask, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Mm. How did that affect you? I just go straight up to that next question. So I don't like to have stuff written down. I like to fill my head with information and then just let it flow like we talked about earlier on. But I think, mate, the most important thing is to listen, make people feel comfortable. And again, have an understanding that people don't, in my world and I say this truthfully, I don't think people listen to the Howie Games to hear me. They listen to the Howie Games to listen to the bloody phenomenal guests we have on the show. So the least I say, probably in the last 30 episodes, I've probably started to speak a bit more, but the less I say, the better because then it's more of the guest and people are listening for Mark Webber, not for Mark Howard.
0: Mm, Yeah, for sure. So interesting. Uh, Even just on that point, I think I couldn't agree more with that and I've definitely learned a lot from you in that aspect. But one thing... I've learnt with guests and being, you know, players, athletes, high-profile people, one thing I try and do at the start of every episode, I always say to them, no matter what you say, like, you can listen over this at the end. Anything you say, we can take out. Not once has anyone ever wanted anything taken out, but they just feel so much more calm when I say that. Like, they just, it just yep. disarms people straight away. And there's ever been times where I'm like, shit, I should probably take that out just for their benefit and they don't even want it out, but I've taken it out just because I'm like, well, oh, that could backfire for them. Um, and I, I think that's probably one thing about your show, and, and hopefully mine, is that it's. I would never want people to think I'm trying to get a story out of them. I just want to tell their story, mate. Um, and that
1: I, I think that's why you, you're successful. I, I say exactly the same thing. I, the way I start a podcast before we record: deal. If anything comes out that you're not comfortable with, yeah. or they ask a question you're not comfortable with, I've said this 150 times. Let me know, and we'll cut it out because we are not about putting you on the front page of the paper were about having a genuine conversation. I've had I've had it happen twice, once with Brendan McCullum, because he said that the way you ask that question around a certain topic, it could be libelous. He said it to me. I was like, oh, okay. And once Anna Mears answered a question about drugs in cycling and she she answered two different questions and the second one, she said, oh, I just wasn't happy with that answer, so we cut it out. But uh, exactly what you're talking about, I remember sitting down with Cadell Evans before we started, pretty closed fella, lives down here in Heads. amazing athlete, lovely guy. I said to him before he started, you know, I, I just don't see the benefit here of us talking about drugs in cycling and Lance Armstrong. And the weight that came off his shoulders, it was like, hey. Really? Okay, let's get into it. And he was a completely different interview. And 2% of the audience might say, oh, that's a cop-out. You didn't ask him about drugs and cycling. The same thing with Steve Smith. A lot of people piled into me. Why didn't you ask him about what happened in South Africa? Well, Steve is giving his time. We have a relationship where he's agreed to come on. He's not going to say, oh, I tell you what, Howie, this is actually what happened. Mm -hmm. So what's the point of bringing it up? Because he can't answer it. Cadell's not going to answer it to in any way, shape or form that might shed light on something we all know a lot about. So don't even go there because as you say, it's going to put them in a in an uncomfortable position and they're giving you their time and their expertise. Why make them feel uncomfortable?
0: I had a prominent journo once actually say to me the same thing. He said, look, I love your podcast, but you don't ask enough hard-hitting questions. Yeah,
1: yeah, I get this. And it this. sort
0: of really rattled me for a bit. I was like, oh shit, yeah, you're right. Like maybe I have to do that. And then I really sat back and thought and I was like, that's your role, mate. Like, if they want to hear that, they can come and listen to you. Like, that's not what I'm about. I don't really give a shit what they no. can have to say about their, their, you know, things that have happened. If they're open to talk about it, they are. If they're not, then they're not. And that's something that I've been pretty strong on throughout. And I think that, I think the guests appreciate it more than anything.
1: Oh, tremendously. Uh, tr- tremendously. And you get such a better interview and such a more interesting interview with Steve Smith, not talking about, mate, whose idea was the sandpaper. Like, why ask that? Well, he can't say anything anyway. So I think, I always think that the guest is doing you a tremendous favour. So if people say you're not asking the hard questions, there's still a lot of topics that come up that you think, gee whiz. And I've had ones where I've rang them the next day and said, you know what, I think we should cut that out. And they've said, no, no, leave it in there. That's who I am. So you're spot on. I've had that experience as well.
0: If someone hadn't listened to the Howie Games, they'd been living under a rock for the last uh, six years. <laughs> what episode would you say listen to? This one, this typifies who I am. This is the chat that I love. What what is what's a highlight for you? Is does there one that stand out?
1: The one that I think typifies what I is that uh, the entertainment factor of the show. I would say listen to episode the episode with Luke Longley, because I, he was just telling incredible stories about pseudonyms and checking into hotels where he was, he'd check into hotels as Bruce Doole or Norman Gunston in his heyday at the Bulls. That's how big they were. And stories about Jordan just blew me away. So from an entertainment point of view, from, so the, the show is aimed at being entertaining. The show is aimed at being inspirational and motivational. And I think Kate Campbell and Bronte Campbell talking about failure and how you can try and overcome it it sits tremendously with me as far as summarizing big moments in sport adam scott episode 100 where he talked about the masters blow by blow blew me away but if i had to tell people to listen to and i love them all it's like which is your favorite child um, although a day-to-day at homeschooling at my joint, it's definitely my daughter at the moment because my son just wants to go skateboarding and surfing, but that's a story for another day. Um, one that is not typical of the podcast at all. It's atypical of the podcast. And I don't know if I would do it these days, which is a shame because of the, the, just the way the podcast has grown. In the first 10 episodes, there's an episode with a guy called Jack Jones, who was 80-odd at the time. Sarah Jones' grandfather passed away last year. He is the greatest... Australian I've ever met it's mm. it's about football and about serving your country and I just love every Australian to hear about mateship and sacrifice from a bloke that was fighting in the jungles of Papua New Guinea it's not representative of the show mate mm. and I don't know if you've listened to it but go and have a listen to it and you'll you'll think oh yeah that's what he meant by that every everyone should have the opportunity to hear about mateship and service and putting others ahead of you.
0: Yeah, for sure. So episode ten, Jack Jones, I'll definitely. Oh, check it's not that ten.
1: Out. It's in the first ten. It's it's in the first ten. Um, we'll find it. We'll make sure that we yeah. link
0: it in the show notes as well for everyone. Thank you, mate. That sounds sounds fantastic. Have you had people say no to you before?
1: Yep, 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 yep. Kelly Slater was always my goat guest. I know you, well, I've talked about this with you, and you're a Nick Kyrgios man. That he, he's Yeah, I of am. I'm
0: sort look. He is one of my. He is one of my people, but I think that I'm probably trying to change the identity of the show now. Yeah. Not just sports that. people. Like I just want to just do people that are interesting and I would never want someone to come on the show if they didn't want to come on. That's probably yeah. the number one thing as well. Big key messages. And I suppose lessons you've learned from guests. We spoke huh. about it earlier. We speak about it again, because I feel like it's, it's, it's the reason you do um, podcasting, you know, in a selfish way. Um, and it's not selfish because everyone else gets to listen to it, but it's selfish because you're there experiencing, it and you get to ask the questions. Has there ever been something that really stands out to you in an interview or a chat with someone where you've just been like, fuck, I needed to hear that? That was huge for me.
1: I always finish mine, we're lucky, as you do, to have a lot of kids listen with their parents. So my last question of the podcast is always, for all the youngsters out there, what advice would you give? I should compile that into a motivational book because I've had answers that have blown me away. The general, I'll give you two answers that. The overall theme that I take from my podcast, which is when we're saying if you, if you had your time again and the things you would have learnt, is for every Ricky Ponting that was always going to play for Australia because he was so talented, there are 99 John Aloises who had to work every step of the way to get where they are. So my main takeaway from the podcast as a a general rule but a really strong rule is those that work the hardest achieve the most success that is it's such a cliche deal but it's a cliche because it is true like John Aloisi his brother was a better footballer than he was growing up but he said I worked harder than my brother you know he scored the goal that put us in the World Cup the piece of advice and it, it may because it's in my mind because it's actually the episode as we sit here today it comes out today so I recorded last week with Daniel Kowalski And his view on the world was, it doesn't matter what you do in the world, what level of success you do or don't have. The way he judges success is on how nice a person you are to those that you come across. And it's I I haven't said it as elegantly as he said it, but his basic message was be a good person and everything else will take care of itself, whether it's in the sporting field, the business field, any other field. And that that really hit me because I work in a really competitive industry and it's, it's like your industry. It's dog eat dog. And it just hit me just to be nice, to be, just be nice, be a nice person mm. and things will go your way. And even if things don't go your way, people always say, you know what, that Howie, he's a pretty good bloke. So that's... Yeah. Um, i think it's really important
0: no it's 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 honestly yeah it's a massive it's it's huge i think that you've summed it up beautifully there like just be a good person at the end of the day um good things happen to good people and that's what happens i think one thing that i really learned from listening to your show my show anyone's show that does an interview thing as well i like i could talk about this stuff for days is the way what separates successful people Um, And successful people is a a conversation itself. What is success? I don't know. But people that are happy, people that are doing what they want to do and they're fulfilled and they've got purpose. The one thing that I think is like correlated between all the guests that have that is it's not what happens to them, it's how they react to it. And when they go through like shit things in their life or they get sacked or things don't go their way, they react to that differently to what other people would and they use it as a driving mechanism, not as a roadblock. Um, And that's something that I have learned so much from people, still something that I don't nail to myself today, but it's always at the front of my mind. It's not what happens. It's how I react to it. It's what I can go from here to to learn forward, because that's what I think is prevalent in all the guests that you would have spoken to, all the guests that I've spoken to. And, you know, not saying this is a, a, it's not a superhero skill, but it's something that is really hard to do.
1: I'll tell you what I reckon the superhero skill is in a moment. I could not agree more is every athlete I've had on the show, they have had moments where it was where they've made a duck or they've been dropped or they've kicked it out on the full or they've lost a major or they've choked over a putt. Every single one of them deal has had massive, massive failures along the way and the elite Learn from it. It's such a good point. I reckon from what I've learned, and I've I've always tried to do this, but it's further reinforced it to me. I think that the superhero skill you're talking about is a positive attitude. Again, mate, we're not we're not reinventing the wheel with what we're talking about here. <laughs> but I think I like to be positive. I like to be surrounded by positive people, and I think positive people generally get further. And the second thing that I find I've found listening to people and I've really tried to do is not – you know that old coach speak about control the controllables and don't worry yep. about anything else? Mate, I reckon that's the truest of true uh, – we're in lockdown at the moment here in Victoria. I'm doing what I need to do, but am I thinking about it? Are going to get out of lockdown next week? I can't do anything about it. So why waste – Why bring a negative slant on my day? Why worry about something I cannot control? And that has held me in really good stead, mate. Um, Just don't worry about the stuff that you can't control because you can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about whether they're going to get out of lockdown. You can't do anything about it. Just worry about the things you can do, which at the moment for me is helping my kids with with their homeschooling, trying to stay fit, Trying to keep work, plugging along. I can control all that stuff, so forget about all the other stuff, I reckon.
0: Huge mate. Such a good message for what we're in at the moment, especially being Victorian's COVID, it's it's shit. It's obviously fucking terrible. Like no oh, one can mate. no one's enjoying it. Um but it is, it's, it's not what happens, it's how we react to it. We just gotta keep pushing, keep going forward. I think the biggest thing that I've learned, especially for the young ones listening, like this can be a time when you play playing Xbox, you're playing PlayStation, you're doing these things, but you actually can use it as like a nearly just lock yourself in a room. And that idea, that business that you thought you wanted to do and you've said you've always wanted to do it, use this week to just fucking nut, nut, nut it out. That yeah. is like the biggest time you could do it. Um, I'm – this sounds like I've been positive the whole time. Don't get me wrong. I've nearly banged my head against a wall of cried. I've been upset with everything that's happened. But I've thought, well, fuck, I can – you know, how are we sitting at home? I'm going to get him on the podcast this week. Yeah. All these people are doing nothing. I can just smack it out right now. There's no other distractions. Um, focus on what you can and it still gives you that little bit of fulfillment throughout the day that, that helps a lot
1: oh mate that's what i did last year i used to put out an episode every two weeks and i was like i'm not going to be able to do the podcast and someone said to me about zoom I was like well dan ricardo not got a race this weekend yeah. adam scott <laughs> hasn't got a golf tournament to play in sally fitz can't go surfing let's get them on like they're sitting yeah. at home doing bugger all like me and that, that's the great benefit of zoom a right, question for you you talked about success how do you define success
0: Oh, I love this question. I saw a graph not long ago and it was like a graph. I, I, I'm very bad at explaining things. Um, but it was a graph on like the old school success. So it was like job title versus salary versus work. And then there was this like new age success and it was job title, salary, success, free time, purpose, fulfillment, um, passion. Hmm. All like There was like yeah. a million other things that you <laughs> can measure in success now. And I was like, yeah. fuck, you know, like is success to me like – being the biggest podcast in the world and earning 300 million dollars and being extremely busy and not being able to do anything or is it doing what I'm doing now being able to do what I love talk to incredible people have impact on people hopefully and live my life and also have balance and be able to see my friends and do things so I'm like it's I think that that is success at the moment for me like I'm really happy with everything I'm doing not saying that I'm content as I said, I'm in a rush. I want to be doing a million other things. I want to fucking – like I've got so many – my biggest problem is I've got too many ideas that I want to do special things. Like even this lockdown period, I've already planned another business. I've got a really bad habit, Howie. So my missus has banned me from buying <laughs> business names. So I've got about <laughs> about four to 15 business names, okay? I, I've got that many fucking ideas for businesses. I go on there, I get the business name, I get the Instagram name, I buy the domain name, right. and I also get the – um. Linktree name as well So I've just it's When I get that It's like this euphoric feeling I get Like of just having these things Planned in the background That I could you're go You're a to business a name hoarder I am It's, it's embarrassing <laughs> um, So that's what I'm doing At the moment But yeah To answer your question Like success for me is, is doing something You're passionate about As corny as that sounds I think if you can be happy With what you're doing um, And somehow Making a difference Like Oh it sounds so uh, Childish But like it's not because I, and I'm sure you would get this tenfold, but getting messages from people saying, like, mate, had a shit week, listen to the podcast this week. I'm like, fuck, job done. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I can feel anyway anymore. I don't care what I've done this week, if I've stuffed up, had a shocking week. But if somehow, if someone sends like a message like that through, not that you, you know, not that you want to be relying on extrinsic motivators, but that is something that really does motivate me um, to to have impact on other people because I know. again in a selfish way, if I was a kid and could listen to maybe a show that I've done with someone back when I was playing footy, fuck, maybe that could have changed something for me. You know, I don't feel like I really had that when I was growing. So that's probably where the purpose part comes from.
1: It's a great answer. It's a great answer.
0: Thank you. And you, what's your success?
1: Well, as far as the podcast, yeah, we've done episodes about mental health, about racism. Daniel Kowalski today for the first time talking about sexuality when people that have walked in that athlete shoes that are a normal normal person that said that you know I, I suffered from or I'm suffering from mental health and to listen to Lisa Jones talk about it openly if she can suffer from it and this is what she did then that fills me with hope I get messages like that that um I get messages like that that make me cry Wow, what a wonderful gift to be able to give someone a bit of yeah. hope, or a bit of happiness, or a bit of a path forward. I think that's that's all you can ask for. As far as as far as happiness for me, yeah, as success for me, it's just just happiness. Happiness is a lot of different things for a lot of people. For me, it's being in a position where my wife and I can take our kids overseas to the places we like going whether it's South Africa or Panama or Costa Rica or Peru and spend 6 weeks educating them about the world and and going surfing and speaking a different language and and having a bus cancelled and having to come up with a plan B and learn about resilience rather than just hear the word that that's happiness to me seeing my family Due to the work that my wife and I have put in together to be able to be in a position like that, that's that's happiness for me. It's not, it's not material. It's not a house or a car or even a job. But if you're going to do a job, you might as well have one that you enjoy. That's that's <laughs> that's. Just, I don't. I don't get old mate sitting on the freeway going to a job that he doesn't enjoy for forty hours a week. That's something I've never understood.
0: I get it. I, I, there's something there that. I saw a video yesterday and I'm sorry I'm taking up way too much of your time. But no, I got, a, mate,
1: I'm in lockdown. I've got nothing to oh, do, Oh, yeah, brother. true.
0: All right, well, we've got 24 hours of podcast here. But there was a video I saw the other day and it really clicked with me about that, what you're saying then about working hard but doing it at a job you love. And someone was saying, how can you measure someone's work rate or their work ethic on a job that they don't enjoy? Mm. It's like measure, me, measure my work ethic in a job I'm passionate about. That's how you measure someone's work ethic. So when you say someone's lazy – are they lazy or are they just in a job that they hate? Because if you're in a job that you're passionate about, like you are and, and, and I definitely am, you will do anything. Like yep. you will li- it's not even a job. You, you do anything to do that. So I think that was like an awesome point. you was saying like
1: yeah, absolutely. If, you're,
0: if you're not working hard or you're, you're struggling to think, oh, I don't have a work ethic. Why can't I work as hard? Maybe because it's not in the field that you're working because you know what it's like when you've got your own business or you've got something that you – it's not a job. You, you'll, you'll bend over backwards to get it done.
1: Oh mate, and I early doors. I've done some, shh, shh, I've done some terrible jobs. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have been the world's worst employee because I hated what I'm doing. I've, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I've done some crap jobs. I don't
0: think three rw would speak too highly of my work ethic on the phones. <laughs> to be honest, I used to put through. They had the same number as like Ultratune. Yeah. And I was, I was so, like, not. I was pretty much planning my own shows as I was being there. Um, and somehow on the phone said I'd just put through the callers. I was like, yeah, whatever, sweet, come, you know, line six. And they'd go on air and they're like, yeah, Jimmy here, mate, I've just got a flat tyre. And I was like, <laughs> oh, fuck, I've just put through like an Ultra Tune call straight online to like live. So that was why it didn't really work out there and I can't blame them for um, not uh, extending some, some casual hours for me.
1: So are you, going to, are you going to have another crack at getting into commercial radio, which you'd be perfect um, at?
0: I'd, look, Matt, I, I have no um, – I have no hesit- – like, I love what you guys do. I love doing it. At the moment, I'm so happy doing this. I love the podcasting world. But I also think that there's a massive, massive um, hand in that commercial sense that what you've been able to do to build not only your podcast but your broadcasting and commentary and then also your personality on a radio like Triple M, you're sort of hitting three facets there that show yep. three different yous. And I think that's an awesome – sense like i don't something that i'm really passionate i don't ever ever want to pigeonhole myself into being something i don't want to be just an interview guy i don't want to be just a Mm. footy guy i want to be different sort of things i think that the radio would actually really help that um and it's something that i'm definitely definitely keen on doing if the opportunity ever presented and and like you said i'd never say no to it i always say yes opportunities so i'll look to do something like that in the future for sure
1: What's fun mate because you can roll up in thongs and aborties and you don't have to brush your hair you don't have to wear makeup you don't have to shave there's a lot to like about radio mate there's a lot to like about radio
0: howie this uh this isn't as smooth as your transitions in podcasting because as we said we talk today i've not looked at a question we have just chatted it's been unbelievably um organic i've absolutely loved it but there was one story i wanted to talk to you about yep um that was in your podcast that that gilly actually spoke to you about it was when you were trekking through South, uh, South America um, looking for gorillas. What's this one? This is unbelievable.
1: Well, uh, firstly, it's Africa deal. There's no gorillas in South America.
0: Okay, that's, uh, that's <laughs> fantastic. That's a good research done there by me. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, because I I knew that, obviously, I was going to say, if you're looking for them there, they're not there. That's That's right.
1: So, yeah, I spent six months tracking around South America, couldn't find a gorilla. Um, So I went to Africa, mate. It was, um, oh, you want me to tell you the story of? Please do. Well, I I spent a lot of time traveling as a young bloke and I was uh, two years of... South America, North America, Middle East, Europe, uh, a lot of time in Africa. And I met some people and they said uh, that they'd visited the mountain gorillas in Rwanda. And I thought that's for me. That is for me. I was in England at the time. I was thinking about coming home after a long time. while I was like, no, no, I need to go and I need to go and see this. Uh, and I was I got myself to Kenya and then Uganda, and the gorillas were uh, they're sort of in the Congo, the mountain gorillas between Uganda and Rwanda. Uh, so, I went to Kampala, which is the capital of Rwanda, hitchhiked, caught a bus, met another guy from Perth. We're all set to go and see these gorillas in Uganda. It's the middle of nowhere, mate. This is late 90s. It's the middle of nowhere. And we get to the hostel, for want of a better term, mate, where we were staying. An old mate there, Captain Uganda, says, Oh, unfortunately, boys, the guerrillas at the moment, they're not in Uganda. They're on the Rwandan side of the border. And that was an issue because Rwanda was just coming out of a horrific civil war uh, between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Uh, watch the movie Hotel Rwanda if you want to know yeah. what I'm talking about. It was a frightening, frightening war. But I was a pretty determined character thinking, well, I've I've sort of got myself around the whole world, I can do this. So we headed down to the Rwandan border and they weren't letting tourists in. But there's a certain way in that part of the world that you can make what will be described as
0: instant visa payment deal, for want of a better term. <laughs> did they have the, they didn't have the tap and go there, did they?
1: There was no tap and go <laughs> and there was no visas available. But if you had, I can't remember what the figure was, but if you handed your passport over with some US dollars in it, you would get an instant visa that didn't appear on your passport. But I'm sure the money eventually got to where it was meant to go. But it started off in the uh, border bloke's pocket. And from there, I don't know. So I found myself with this other guy in Rwanda, which was, it was frightening in a lot of ways because uh, so many of the – it was a – I won't go into it, but there was it was it was, a, it was a war fought in many ways with very primitive weapons. So there was a lot of disfigured people. Oh, yeah. uh, we get to Kigali, the capital, and they say, "Well, this is the, you got to catch this bus out here to go to um, the national park where, in theory, the gorillas are." People were really friendly. They're pumped to see us because they hadn't had visitors in their country. Uh, got to the small place. There's no other tourists there. Staying in for a dollar fifty a night. Basically, a concrete block that had sort of bullet holes all around the outside of it. There was no running water. Me and old mate sleeping on the floor. How are we going to see these gorillas? And as luck would have it, I was taking a photo of the Rwandan flag on top of a municipal building in this little town it's in a place near Ruangeri. And old mate comes up with his AK forty-seven. And scared the bejesus out of me, he said, you can't be taking, All oh, in French, I speak enough Spanish to get around, so yeah, Spanish and French are reasonably similar. You, you, can't, be taking, you can't be taking photos here. Um, what are you doing here? I said, well, we're here to see the mountain gorillas. He said, well, you, you can't get up there, uh, but I work for the army and we do patrols up there every day uh, to keep an eye on the gorillas. Uh, okay He said, well, come to the barracks the next morning. So we went to the barracks the next morning and it was 200 US dollars each of us, and we didn't know what we were really paying for. But then we got a briefing by old mate in French. so it was just me and this other Aussie guy. and they they were they were keeping an eye on the gorillas from poachers, which were gorillas, G U E gorillas rather than G O R gorillas. So, gorillas were coming across from the Congo side uh, and potentially poaching the gorillas, which were worth a lot of money. So, anyway, we're like, righto, let's go. So, me and this other fella and the army guys, about six of them, we start hiking up these you know, rainforest mountains. And they'd said to us, if we see the gorillas, G O R gorillas, then you've got to be subservient, lie on the ground, don't look at them. Especially the silverback, okay? If we see the other gorillas, the GUE gorillas, which are the poachers, lie on the ground and don't look at them either. So basically, the instruction was if you see gorillas of any type, deal. lie on the ground and look at the dirt in front of you. And that, But they said if there is gorillas of the army type, there will be, you know... There'll be there'll be gunfire. That's what we're up here to do. So it was a pretty sketchy situation. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, there was no gorillas of that type. And we're probably four or five hours in into this hike, and then I, I, never, I can I can remember it clear as day. Old oh, mate stopped, and he said, "Okay, you see over there where all that sort of grass and stuff is pushed down? That's where the gorillas were last night. That's where they slept." It's not like a zoo. Like you're out in the middle of the jungle. They can be Africa. anywhere. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere. And he said, I think – and there was no guarantee you were going to see them, which is the great part of any adventure. You don't know if you're going to achieve success. That's why they always say the journey is as much part of the the trip as the destination. And 25 minutes later, he's like – he holds his hand up like this and we all have to lie on the ground. And we looked up and there in this glade was 10 mountain gorillas from the silverback to the mums to the little ones – and you just, mate, you don't understand how big these buggers are. Like, the blokes have just got arms like, you know, like Jacob Weedering's quads. That's how big <laughs> their arms are, these boys. Like, they're big, right? And the silverback, you know, the old where they used to sort of beat the chest. It, it, they sort of do that, obviously. And, and he walks over. And I could hear him breathing. I don't know how close he was because I'm looking down in the mud. I could hear him breathing. And all the army guys are on the ground. We're all on the ground. And he sort of has a poke around because he's used to seeing these guys sort of every day. And he thinks everything's okay. So he heads off back to the, the, I don't know. What's a gorilla? Is it a troop?
0: Yeah, let's go with that. Well, what would you know, mate? You you thought
1: you thought
0: they were going to definitely. I yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be the one asking me what they are. Definitely, let's
1: (laughs) say a a group rather than a A troop of gorillas, and then we were able to walk up, uh, and we had to sit about ten meters away, and then the gorillas was up to them whether they wanted to interact, and the little ones look exactly like toddlers. They Come up, and the little one would sort of race up like a little kid would and pull your hair and then run off, and his mother would cuff him around his head. So, we stayed up there with these gorillas for an hour, mate. For, from all my travels, it was the most magical thing I've ever done. Partly because of the adrenaline, partly because we didn't know if we were going to get shot, partly we didn't know if we were going to see the gorillas, partly because we were in a country illegally with no visas in our passport because we'd bribed our way into the country. And it was the most magical hour I've ever spent. I had a shitty camera, I've got a few photos that do not do do it justice, but that was in the day where you didn't need your iPhone. You didn't need to have everything and show everyone yeah. on Insta that you'd seen these gorillas. Uh, I've got some photos I, I showed my kids a year or two ago and they, they were blown away. And then we had to make mm. our way down the hill out of the country. But I can just remember lying on this wooden stretcher then, that night in this little town thinking that's, that's what life is. That's mm. putting it putting your nuts on the line, having a crack and living an adventure. That's to me still, that's what life is all about. So yeah, that was the gorillas in Africa, Guru.
0: Unbelievable. You've nailed that. I can feel you've definitely told that story a few times because it's, uh, it comes off the tongue very well. Mate, you've been, you've been incredible today, Howie. I can't thank you enough for your time, Um, the wisdom, everything. To be honest, you're you're an incredible man. You've done so many good things and, and you've done it as we said earlier, not, not as an overnight, it's taken a long time to, to build up to where you are now. So you're a real credit to yourself, mate. And um yeah, it's honored to, to honored to know you and honored to, to have you as a as a per se mentor. And um yeah, can't be can't be more grateful for having you on the show.
1: Mate, thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. I I always feel a bit uncomfortable answering the questions rather than asking them, but you do a a very natural job, which is why I was happy to do it. I meant what I said the way through, mate. I think I've got a lot of learning to do from you. I'm about to start up with YouTube and merchandise, which you've inspired both of those. I think the YouTube channel might go out today. Uh, We're still uh, fine-tuning it, and we're working on the merchandise. Um, So uh, the merchandise isn't available yet, but you've inspired me to go down that path, and I... I, uh, I would like to think, Dil, somewhere down the track that you and me can be in a position where we're looking after um, a suite of podcasts. I don't know if that would ever happen, but I think that would be something that would be really, really cool.
0: Definitely, mate. We'll take this chat offline. I'm very looking forward to that. And we will be tagging your new YouTube um, username in when we upload this. So don't forget, um, guys, if you're watching this on YouTube now, which you will be, swipe up. You'll see the the links um, and get on Howie's YouTube page because that'll be fantastic well done mate you've adapted you're the OG and you're you're doing incredible (laughs) things so thanks so much for your time and um, look forward to catching up soon good on you mate thanks for having me on cheers Dylan. if that wasn't enough for you and you want even more you're in luck Dylan Friends is now on Patreon Dylan Best Friends An exclusive loyalty subscription featuring the debrief podcast of each episode and bonus Q&A's from Patreon members like this. Leigh Archer says, What's it like being in the box with some of the biggest names that have played the games, both footy and cricket? And what's it like being the butt of most of the gags in those situations?
1: Well, who is this from? This is from Blair. Well, Blair, you got to play your role, mate. So <laughs> you're not going in there thinking you're the main man. If you're going to get kicked in the arse, it might as well be you. So I don't mind being the butt of the jokes, especially on the radio.
0: And there's plenty more where that came from. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends. Or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends Podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review, or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends Podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.